If you would, please turn in your Bible to Revelation, book of Revelation, chapter 3. Revelation, chapter 3. We're just going to look at one verse in your hearing today. That's verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word, how precious it is. It's a joy to come and just open it up and look at its precious truths, examine it, um, let it inform our minds so that we conform to it. And, um, and then we can live a life that is glorifying and honoring you as we take every thought captive in our lives to your glory. I pray that you would that you would bless our time, illuminate um, this word, so that we could have understanding. Lord, I pray that um, we then would take it and apply it and live it out, so that you would be honored and glorified in the way we live. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I've got to remind us from time to time that the Book of Revelation is a prophetic book. It's a prophecy book. Now we've been looking through the churches. And there hasn't been a lot of prophecy. It was, but I want to remind you that it is a prophetic book. Look back at chapter 1. Chapter 1, in verse 3, there's a blessing that goes along with this book. And I'll remind you of that. Blessed is he, chapter 1 and verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. It's a prophecy. This is a prophecy. He's laying out things that are... In the future. And then even in verse 19, in chapter 1, verse 19, we have the outline of this book. Verse 19, it says, Therefore, write the things which you have seen. Now, this is Jesus Christ. Christ, he has revealed himself to John. And and Jesus is saying, now, John, I want you to write these things down. And there's three things that I want you to write down. First of all, what you have seen. And that's the vision of Christ. And he writes that down. It was an incredible vision of Christ. And that's in chapter 1. And then he says, number 2, Roman numeral 2 of the outline, write down the things you've seen. That's number 1. Number 2 is the things which are, that currently are, the state of the church as it exists. And these seven churches are an example, really, of churches down through the ages, of ways that the churches falls into uh, the wrong uh, patterns. And he says, now write those things down, the things that are, the things that are at that time, the seven churches of, uh, of Asia Minor at that point. And that's exactly what we've seen for chapters two and chapter three. We've seen that written down. And then the third Roman numeral three is what? And the things which will take place. Now, the majority of this book of Revelation are the things that will take place. That starts in chapter 4 and moves all the way up to chapter 22. So this is a prophetic book. Things that will happen. Things that will take place someday. And we need to be reminded of that. And this is a good outline for us. And we're getting ready to move into that. But John introduces us in this one little passage, this one little verse. He introduces us into this topic that he's going to revisit in just in verse, in chapters, uh, in chapter four, actually. He's going to revisit, and that is the topic of eschatology. How are things going to end? 
how are how are things uh, uh, going to wrap up? We know that there's things that need to be wrapped up, and we're all interested in how it ends, in what's next. In in every age, they've they've been interested in that. In fact, what we see throughout Scripture, almost every writer has something to say about uh, about prophecy, even if it's just a little verse or a little statement here. It's just about the future many times. And prophecy really is scattered throughout the whole of Scripture. Moses and David and Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, they all had, they were prophets. In fact, John himself calls himself a prophet. This is a prophetic book. And we never want to lose sight of that fact. There's many people that misinterpret this book because they don't see it as a prophetic book. This is a prophetic book. Now, when you're dealing with prophecy, it's kind of like dealing with a a, a thousand-piece puzzle. You've got little snippets all over the place, all over Scripture, and you have to pull them all together. And you see big pictures come into play. When When you begin to do that, you see big picture events, like I said, kind of loose ends that need to be tied up. And if you go to the next screen, you'll see some of those. And I'm going to articulate those. First of all, the coming of Christ. Christ is going to come. And we understand that. He promised that He was going to come. And so He said He's going to come. And that's what that's what He's going to do. We know that He's going to come. And it's just logical. He said He would. And there's so many things that He needs to take care of. The thing is, is we don't know when. In fact, Christ Himself said He didn't know when. He said, that information is up to the Father. I have submitted myself to Him. He's going to tell me when to go. So Christ is going to return, and and He's going to do it in His timing. We know that that's a big picture event. That's an eschatology event. Also, judgment. We know, and Scripture lays it out, that someday we will stand before God in judgment. We will give an account for our life here on this earth. We will give an account for the actions that we've taken in this life. So we know that that is another element. Judgment. But there's also going to be a millennial kingdom. Remember, Christ said He's going to return. But He's also the Messiah. And He is going to establish a kingdom here on earth. We read that throughout Scripture. And He's the Messiah. And I believe that it's a literal thousand-year reign. And it's going to be a specific place, Jerusalem. A specific country, Israel. And He is going to reign from that particular place with a rod of iron. But there's also a tribulation. Now, these are big picture things, right? Big picture. The tribulation. And that's a a seven-year period of time. We see that in the book of Daniel kind of throughout. A seven-year period of time where it kind of starts off good. Things start off seemingly friendly and peaceable. But by year three, three and a half, things begin to fall apart. And there's chaos and destruction And we'll see that. I don't want to go too much into that. But in chapter 6 all the way up to chapter 19 is basically about the tribulation. That tribulation period. The Bible, there's a lot to say in the book of Revelation about that. But also the eternal state. We've heard at some point the earth is going to be burned up. This old earth. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth that comes down from the heavens. And we will be there forever. In this new heavens, new earth. 
Now, the tendency is, is to take prophecy, just take those big picture things. When we read those in Scripture, we just kind of throw them into a pile and just kind of pull them all together and say, well, we, we'll figure that out later. And we don't take the time to put all the pieces together and see exactly how it's going to lay out. And, and really, that's been the, the church throughout history. It's just kind of put that in. And we haven't really focused. In fact, it's only been about 100, 150 years that we focused on eschatology and, and trying to put that into place. We've been thinking through salvation and Christology and even the, the Trinity and those elements. And I think that it is time for us to focus on eschatology. How are things going to work out? And when you do that, you have to exegete every passage of Scripture. And then you take those passages and you pull them together in a careful, systematic theology and pull them together and you put every piece into place. And just like in the mind of God, everything will work out and everything will be a beautiful picture when it does. Now, that's hard work. But also, we're not going to know everything. And we know that we're not going to know everything. God has not given us everything, but He has given us a lot. And the things that God has given us, we are accountable for. And we need to make sure that we put every puzzle in its place. We have to be careful with Scripture. And so in this passage right here, we have just this little tidbit of eschatology. Here's what's going to happen. This is futuristic things. He introduces to us in this passage to another element, and that is a rapture. Now, I know a lot of people today do not um, do not believe in a rapture. They say, well, it's not found in Scripture. They say the word rapture is never in Scripture, and they would be right. But I believe the concept of a rapture is in Scripture. I believe that it is there, and I believe that we can see it. This idea that it's part of the second coming of Christ, but He's going to come down seven years earlier, and He is going to He is going to to come and meet in the air, in the clouds, and He's going to bring us up, and we'll we'll see that this rapture. We will be raptured up, and we will be caught up together with Him in the clouds, and then we will be taken. And it's the verses that was read for us earlier. Now, but like I said, a few people, they say it's not in Scripture. They don't see it in Scripture. So I want to lay that out a little bit today. But the context here, we we never want to forget the context. Remember, chapter 3 and verse 7, all the way down to verse 13, is talking this letter to the church at Philadelphia. This letter to the church of Philadelphia. And Christ is addressing this church, and He is commending them. Remember last week's sermon, He was commending them for what? Their faithfulness. He's saying, now you guys have been faithful and I'm going to reward that faithfulness with more opportunities for ministry. And I'm going to allow you to make some inroads into the Jewish community so much so that they're going to come and submit themselves to you and, and they will say, teach us the word of God. Teach us what you know. We've blown it. And that's what's going to happen. I would assume that that happened. In the church at Philadelphia. So we know in history we've seen that. And the church at Philadelphia is, was, was there. And it thrived. But there's another reward here. There's another reward. 
they were faithful. Now look at the correlation. Their faithfulness that gained them, the reward for that faithfulness, was more opportunity, right? More opportunity for ministry. More opportunity to be faithful. Look at verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance. Because you have kept yourself under and you've propped yourself, you you have endured, you have endured the pressures of life and the persecutions of life, then here's what I'm going to do. Then there's another reward here. There's another reward. I will keep you from the hour of testing. Because, and this is a correlation, you've persevered in this, so I'm going to take you out from that perseverance, so you won't have to persevere. I'm going to take, I'm going to remove you from that. And you see the correlation. So in this passage, I believe that we see that John is introducing this idea, first of all, of a tribulation period, and then an, a rapture as well. And we see that, that Christ is a good and gracious God who is, who has promised to keep His church from this hour of testing. That Jesus Christ is in His goodness and His grace has promised to keep His church from the hour of testing. And what I want to do is just basically examine this one verse and I want to milk it. I want to see what all is in this verse and see how this pieces together and see if there's enough evidence for a rapture. So I've asked three questions. There's three questions I want to ask about this passage as we move through this. Number one, the first question is, how will Christ then keep the church from the hour of testing? Look at verse 10 again. He says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance. Now, what is that talking about? The word of, of Christ's perseverance is, the, is his testament, the way he persevered. And his example of persevering. And they kept that, and, and they've, they've, uh, they've uh, exemplified that in their own life, this example that Christ said, and they've done that. And so now he says, I'm going to keep you then from the ultimate hour of testing. Okay, so we understand that. How is he going to do that, though? How is he going to do that? He says, I will also keep you from. Now, those are important words there. I will keep you from this hour of testing. The Greek word there is terao or tereo. And it's to keep or to guard or to protect. You can even use that word. And then he uses the word from, protect from or keep from. It's a good translation. I'm going to keep you from that. Now, those words mean something. By the way, it's Christ said that I'm going to keep you from the whole hour of testing, not just half that hour, not just the latter half. I'm going to keep you from the whole hour of testing. Now, this same little phrase, keep you from or keep them from or keep you from is um, is an important phrase. And we see it in John chapter 17. Go ahead and turn there. But he uses the word ek. The word from there is from or out of or away from. It can it can be that. And I want you to turn John chapter 17 because Jesus uses this and those who would oppose a rapture use this verse and say, see, um, uh, it's not uh, this phrase is not used the way you think it is. But I think it is. I think there's plenty of evidence to show that Christ is going to keep us from. Now, they would say, well, Christ is going to keep us, but he's going to keep us in the persecution. He's going to keep us, as we go through this tribulation, He's going to keep us in this, and He's going to preserve us through this tribulation. But it clearly says, keep you from, not keep you through. Now look at this. 
John chapter 17 and verse 15 says this. Now, this is Christ's high priestly prayer. He's talking to his heavenly Father. He's concerned the, um, the disciples there. Jesus is getting ready to be put on the cross. And what's going to happen to these, these precious disciples that he's poured his life into? And he has kept, he has the one that has been keeping them. In verse 15, I do not ask you, you take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. Now, they would say, well, take them out of the world and keep them in the world while they were kept in the world. But if you look carefully, the comparison is keep them in Christ and from Satan, from the evil one. Now, that's the comparison. And so he says that you would protect them or keep them from the evil one. Now, that's very important because that's exactly what happened. God, while Christ was hanging on the cross, God himself protected those disciples, kept them in Christ. Now, Satan would have loved to have gotten his hands on those guys. Yeah, he would have loved to turn their hearts toward him as opposed to Christ. And he said, now keep them in me, keep them in Christ, not in Satan. And that's exactly what happened. They were kept from Satan, kept from the evil one. Well, they remained in the world. That's not the issue. Now, some others would try to make that the issue. But the issue is they were kept in Christ from the evil one. Now, that's the way the phrase is used. Now, if you're, you're already in John chapter... Turn back to John chapter 14. Because I want to flesh this out. Because this seems to be a distinct thing. Christ says, now, I'm going to come back. But I'm going to come, come back... And I'm going to rescue you out or take you from, keep you from this. Look at John chapter 14, because this is Christ's teaching. And he's, he's promising something to his disciples here. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Boy, that is so important. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go... And prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you into myself. That where I am, you may be also. Now look at the terminology. He's going to come and he's going to receive us. Those who are alive, receive them. And the the picture is up. Receive them into himself. And then we're going to be with him wherever he is forever. Okay, that's the that's the picture. And what you're beginning to see is this is not the same thing as Christ coming down and just establishing his kingdom here on earth. It seems to be a distinct element of future. And that's exactly what I think the prophets are doing or John is doing. Because John, by the way, wrote John and the book of Revelation. He knows and he is carving a, a little path right in there and just say, okay, right before that tribulation period, here's what's going to happen. I've got a special little reward for the church, those who persevere. Look, look over at the passage that was read for us earlier. First Thessalonians chapter four. First Thessalonians chapter four. Everyone knew that Christ was going to come back. But this is kind of a little, this is a, kind of a surprise. This would be wonderful teaching for the church. But it's what Christ taught. It's what Paul taught as well. First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. But we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, but those who, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. 
Look, I want to inform you guys so that you don't grieve like those who have no hope, like the unbeliever. They don't have any hope. But we have hope, and here's our hope. And he goes on and explains some things. Let me, let me just skip down, though, to verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, and he will establish his kingdom here on this earth, and everything will be well. No. No, th- this is a little bit different. This is seven years earlier. There's, there's something that else has taken place here. He says, the Lord will descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who have died or fallen asleep in Christ, is the way terminology Paul uses, they're going to start to rise. And then we who are alive and remain, by the way, Paul anticipated that. He wanted to be one of those who was alive. That's been 2,000 years, and we are still waiting, but the still promises holds true. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up Together with him, where? In the clouds. So he's coming down, he gets to the cloud level, and then we start to rise up, we go up, and we meet the Lord in the air. That's pretty specific. We meet the Lord in the air halfway, and then we go up, and so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. These are comforting words. This is good thing. This is optimism. And it's, and it's Christ comes down for his bride. His bride is now awakened and they, they go up and they meet him and they go up into heaven where he has a dwelling place for them, where he has prepared for them. And there's a time of while they were in this tribulation hour, if you go back to Revelation, this tribulation hour, they're, they're rescued from that. Now that's what we see in scripture. Say, man, there's not a whole lot of verses about that. And that's right. But how many times does God have to say something for it to be true? Once. Once. But it's, it's, it's John just carving out. Now, now think about it. This is part of the second coming. But he's going to come a little earlier. And he's going to rescue you out just for your church. This promise, and then this is good news for us because this is a, a sweeping promise. This is a, a persecution that comes upon the whole, the whole earth, not just related to this local church. And the implication, it's for the whole body of Christ. And if you skip down to verse 13, remember what he says. He says, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is to all of us. I believe this is a promise that is open up to all of us because of the, the perseverance we, we hold up just in everyday normal perseverance. We hold up under and Christ said, I'm going to reward that and I'm going to come back and get my bride. And that's the, that's the picture that we see in heaven. This is wonderful news for us, folks. It shows that God is good. But either way, it shows that God is discerning. Discerning. Now that's important because he knows you. He knows what you can handle. He knows what this church can handle. And he says, I'm going to rescue from it. This is going to be a dark hour. I'm going to rescue from this. In other words, and I don't like this analogy. I don't like saying this necessarily, but he's saying, I've got your back. Now, it's, it's just, it's not the most best way or however. It, it's not the best way of saying that, but that's a concept that we use today. He's got us. 
He's got our back. He is. He sees this big picture. And He says, okay, at this time, I'm going to rescue you out. I'm going to rescue the church out. You don't have to worry. In fact, in fact, what does He say? He says, do not let your heart be troubled. He says, he says, I don't want you to grieve as though you have no hope. And that's the context of this, of this little, uh, concept, this idea of a rapture. There's, there's hope. And there's encouragement. And he says, now comfort one another. Even as the more, as you see the day approaching. He says, comfort one another with these words. With this idea, this concept of a rapture. Sure, things are going to get worse and worse. And they look like, and it really is going to get worse. And it will be bad. But, but what we see is evidence of a, of a, a, re, a rapture for his church. God is displaying his, Christ is displaying his kindness and his goodness toward his church and he's displaying right judgment and discernment and, and we can take comfort in that. He knows us. He knows what we can handle. Listen, he's a God I can trust. Is that applicable for us today? Absolutely. We have so many troubles in our life. Why do we? Tr- Why is your heart troubled? Jesus said to the disciples. Have, you ever, have your heart ever been troubled? Have you have you been anxious because well I just don't know what's going to happen, and you you begin to cry as though you have no hope. Paul says, "Don't do that. We've got hope." So the application of this is just for our own encouragement. And, and not fearing. We can lay in bed at night and saying, you know what? My Heavenly Father watches me. He knows what I can handle. He will rescue me out just at the right time. He will take care of me. He is discerning enough. He knows my weak frame. And we can take comfort in that, folks. We don't have to have a troubled heart. <clears throat> we can, as opposed to the world who is anxious who flees to drugs, who flees to alcohol, who flees to all of these things to try to settle their heart, we can settle our heart with these comforting thoughts, with these words. Number two, what is this hour? What is this hour of testing? What exactly is going to take place? Well, that's what the rest of the book of Revelation is, this testing. But let me just try to sum it up. Back to Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. He says, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world. This isn't just a local thing. This is a whole world. And this is our hour of testing. Now, Daniel, when he was looking down the corridors of time, he saw it. And he said it was the 70th week. We call it the 70th week of Daniel. Jeremiah, he called it the time of Jacob's trouble. Christ described it like this. Turn over to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Let's start with verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which you, uh, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet. Now, he even points back to Daniel, saying, here's what Daniel saw. He says, standing in the holy place, he says, let the reader understand, let, you know, hear, hear what I'm saying. Then those who are in Ju- Judea must flee to the mountains. It's going to be particularly bad for Jerusalem, for Israel. They're going to be very, very much persecuted. But verse 21, verse 21. For then, 
there will be a great tribulation. This is the words of Christ, the great, a great tribulation. This is not just the average uh, persecution of the church. This is not just an, an average um, uh, stress of everyday life. No, this is a great persecution such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Wow. This is, this is more than just the norm. So to try to just make light of a, of a persecution or this, this tribulation and just say, oh, it's just the normal everyday persecution of, no, no, it is much bigger than that. And Christ said that. This is a great tribulation. In fact, so much so that unless the days were cut short, unless he limited that to the seven years that, that it was promised, then um, he says, no life would have been saved. For by the sake of the, but for the sake of the elect, those days were, were cut short. He limited those days. So this, this persecution, this hour of testing, this hour of great trial that is going to come upon the whole world is what we're going to be rescued from. Rescued from. And I'll, let me just point out a few little points to this. It's still futuristic. Some would like to say, some would like to say, well, this is talking about Titus. When Titus came in and he sacked Jerusalem, he just devastated Jerusalem. And they would say, now that was the great tribulation. No, this is a global thing. In fact, that's what he, the scope of it is worldwide. Worldwide chaos. Worldwide destruction. And that's what we see starting in chapter 6 in Revelation all the way up to, to 19. The span of this is just a time, a, an hour. It's a limited time. Isn't that a wonderful thought? That it's not just always. It's a limited time. Really what we see when we piece Scripture together is a seven-year period of time. And, and then it's a test. It's a test, not just local. It's a test for the whole world. Now, this is not just a normal persecution, a stress of life. This is not just... The difficulties of life. This is, this is abnormal persecution that comes upon the church. Persecution not on the church, I'm sorry, but the whole, the whole world. Look over in chapter 6. Let's just get a sneak preview of this. Revelation chapter 6. There's going to be wars here. There's going to be famine. There's going to be death. There's going to be martyrs. There's going to be terror. Now that, all of this terminology, we use today. <laughs> It's not much different, but it will be worse. And we will see. That's why I think the book of Revelation spends so much time on this period, uh, this seven-year period of how devastating, how horrible it is going to be. It, it is something to be feared. It is something to avoid. And the only way that it can be avoided is to be in Christ. If you are here and you have not prepared, if you are not in Christ, if you have not turned your back upon your own sinful life and turned to Christ, then folks, you are in danger of this very thing. Of this this hour of testing that's about to come upon the whole world. So we need to examine ourselves. We need to examine ourselves. Are we in Christ? For us believers... We have to remember, look what Christ did. Look over, here's the example, First Peter chapter 2. 
Let me just read this quick verse. Because this is, this is the verse that I keep coming back to last week. And I'll, I'll even do it probably next week. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 23. Here's, here's the mindset for the believers. If you are unbeliever, the only way is to be in Christ. You need to accept Him. You need to pursue Him. You need to get rid of your sinfulness. And confess that before Him. Repent of that. And turn to Him in faith. But for the believers, here's, here's our example. Just keep coming back to the same example. For while He being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered not a threat, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges rightly. That is such an important... He kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges rightly. Judges rightly. The only way to avoid this, and let me tell you, it will come in a twinkling of an eye. He will come and it will all be over. We need to be prepared. We need to be those who are are pushing up, who are uh, holding up under this or persevering under this uh, normal everyday life. Keep constantly, keep entrusting himself to the one who judges rightly. Now, number three, and we'll quickly move through this. Why would God bring tribulation upon the whole world? I mean, if he's going to, if he's going to get rid of the unbeliever anyway, if they're going to stand before him and he's going to judge them and he's going to throw them into hell, why would he, why would he persecute them? Why would he do this to the whole world? I believe there's, in part, it's judgment. This is just part of the judgment. But I also think it's, it's what we see in Revelation 3 verse 10. He says, to test, to test those who dwell on the earth. Now that becomes a technical term. We'll look at that. But it's for testing. He wants to test men's heart. And you say, oh, God already knows the heart, right? Yeah, I'd shake my head. Yes, God knows the heart. But he wants to, to test it. He wants to expose that heart for what it really is. And I'll remind you. Remember what Paul said. He says, now Timothy, he says, now things are going to get worse and worse. There's going to be a form of godliness, but those who deny its power. We can be righteous, we can be godly, we can be good moral people without God. Folks, that's going to be the life. That's what they're going to do. And God says, I'm going to test that heart and prove you wrong. It's a time of testing. And it's a time of testing for the unbeliever. Look at this. In Revelation, now look at the, the terminology, those who dwell on the earth. Like I said, it's a technical term. Look at chapter 6 and verse 10. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, uh, holy and true, will you refrain from judging? Come down, judge these people. Go down and judge these people, Lord. Avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. These earth dwellers. And it's talking about sinful people. He's talking about uh, unbelievers. Look at chapter 8 and verse 13. Now, now you'll begin to see the heart being exposed. Chapter 8 and verse 13 says this. Then I looked. Well, let's look in the middle of verse 13. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet, these these waves of persecution that's going to come to those who dwell on the earth. Now think about this. Where's the church? It's not on the earth. We're not earth dwellers at this point. 
we are in heaven. Look at chapter 11. Chapter 11 and verse 10. And those who dwell on the earth. There's our term. That's a technical term for those unbelievers. We'll look at what they're going to do. They're going to rejoice over over them and celebrate and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. The only conscience left is two men that God set and they were a conscience to this world and the world hated them. And they're, in fact, they're going to send gifts to one another. They're going to turn it into a holiday. We finally got rid of those two witnesses. Those who dwell on the earth. Look at chapter... 13 and verse 8. Chapter 13 and verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship Him. You think, well, that's God, right? They're all going to worship God. No, this is talking about the beast. <laughs> this is, this is an antichrist. They're going to worship Him. You, you, you say, really? They claim to be godly. There's a claim to godliness here. They're good moral people, but, but they're worshiping. They celebrate when God's people, when God's witnesses are gone. And they, and they worship Him. They worship this, this beast. And they even take His name. Yeah. Exposing the heart. Exposing the heart. Exactly what you see in verse 14. The, those who dwell on the earth, they will even make an image to the beast, exposing the heart for what it really is. Oh, we're good moral people. We can do without God. We can, we can moralize our society. The reality is, is they are men worshipers. They don't worship the true and living God. And that's the reality. He's going to test the heart. And he's going to expose that heart for what it really is. And God will be just then. And everybody will see it. God will be just when He punishes them. When He sends them to an eternal hell. And everybody will see it. Yes, God, You are just in what You are doing. You tested that heart. You know, when I was in school, I'd often say, and this is really bad, but I'd often say, I know this material. I know this. I don't need to study for this test. But when that test came along, what? That test exposed how much I really knew. And I always said, I wish I had studied more. I wish I had prepared for this test more. But that test exposed how much I knew, right? That's exactly what's going to go on here. Oh, we are good more. We're good people. Why would God punish good people? The reality is, is they are worshipers of men and not worshipers of God turned their back on God. In fact, they crucified Him. Their heart will be exposed and it will be displayed for the whole world to see. See their wickedness. The whole universe, the angels will testify, yes, Lord, you are, you are justified in sending mankind to hell. In fact, all of them should be in hell. You are very gracious to save some. You're very gracious in doing that. And that's exactly what we are to conclude. Now, let me go back to our verse. Because you know what Paul said? Paul said, there is none righteous, not even one. We're not good. But He is good. We think we're good. 
But, but in reality, we're, we're really not. Our judgment is not all that good. You say, well, I can, I can tell good from evil. I know good people from bad people. But the reality is, is we really can't. We really don't know. What we have to do is exactly what Peter said. We have to keep constantly entrusting ourselves to Him who judges what? Righteously or rightly. He is the one that has the right perspective. He is the one that is good. He is the one that can tell what is the right thing to do and what is the wrong thing to do. And so we just don't even trust our own thinking. We just submit to Him. See, Lord, I'm going to, by faith, submit to this Word. Submit to this Word. I'm going to take this Word and I'm going to let it examine my heart. I'm going to conform to it. Now, let me show you how this works. Hebrews chapter 4, and this is the last verse, and we'll conclude with this. Hebrews chapter 4 says this, For the Word of God is living, and it is active, and, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. It, it, can, even, it can even divide those things that are indivisible. You can't, can't divide them. Joints and marrow, you can't divide those things. And able to judge, that's it, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Listen, here's what I do. I take this word. And I look at this word and let it judge me. And I conform myself to it. And I submit myself to His judgment. And say, okay, Lord, I'm going to do that. And that's the example. That's the perfect example of what Christ did. Under any persecution, under any pressure, any trials in our life, we just keep on entrusting ourselves to Him who judges rightly. And Christ said, okay, you do that, I'm going to come and get you. I'm not going to leave you on that earth during that hour of persecution. Isn't that a beautiful scene, folks? It's a beautiful scene. It's a beautiful picture when all those puzzle pieces come together and we just think, you are a gracious and kind and loving God to do that for us. Now, I don't know if I'll be alive, but you know what? My heart doesn't have to be troubled. I don't have to grieve as though I do not have hope. I can comfort one another with these words. I can comfort my own self with these words. And that's exactly what we're supposed to do. Faith in God. Trusting in Him. I'm going to trust You, Lord. You say You're going to come. Things are getting worse and worse. There's terrorism. There's wars. Rumors of wars. There's things are getting worse and worse. But I'm going to trust in You. I'm going to trust in You. And that's the perfect example of what Christ did And he says, I'm going to reward that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement, for the comfort that we gain from it. It really is comforting. Now, Lord, help us in the middle of the night when we're struggling, sleeping, and our anxious heart is is dealing with us, and, and our minds just won't settle down. Let us, please, let us get these thoughts And let our minds mull them over and take comfort with these words. With this promise. With this promise that you will come down. You will rescue. You will raise us up. And we will be with you always. Even while there's chaos going down, going on here, down on this earth. Lord, we will be, we will be rejoicing with you. Lord, (laughs) I pray selfishly, come quickly. Come today. I look forward to it, Lord. We're anxious. We're excited about your coming. 
I pray that that would be the prayer of our own, all of our hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And I ask you to stand. If we can help you in any way, we'd love to be able to do that. We'd love to pray with you. These are spiritual things that you have to deal with in your own thoughts, your own mind. Our elders would love to be able to pray with you. I would, I would, even throughout the week, you can come to me. You know that I've said those things before. But, but please, we're here. If you're dealing with things, we'd love to hear about them. We'd love to pray with you. Exciting things. Exciting things, isn't it? We have, the Bible has answers, folks. It gives us reason to have hope. Tim, come and lead us. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You're dismissed.